so far, Write Questions has always started with a question that I've really been asked in life with a specific memory of it. And today's question is one that I've been asked so many times that I don't even have a really solid memory about it. I just know that I get asked the question all the time when I meet a stranger and I say that I'm Episcopalian, a professional Episcopalian at that. The question, query, inquisitive response, I'm not even sure it really counts as a question. It's more like a statement with a question mark at the end, is, aren't you just a church because King Henry wanted a divorce? I've even had it said a little bit more salaciously. I do remember one time, I don't remember who or where, said, um, aren't you just a church because King Henry was a tramp? And my response is always, well, that is part of the story, but it is so much more complex than that. So, Dan, do you get this question? Yeah, it, it's um, kind of an annoying question because um, it feels like it's a question that comes from someone who just watches the History Channel a little too much or just has sort of a pop culture knowledge of just everything. And so when I got the question, I wonder, like, do you want an answer? Do you, do you want to be engaged in this? Or are you just trying to, like, deflect uh, away from actually engaging with anything? I think sometimes that's what's going on. I also feel like there's a piece of it that it's one of the only things that where the church comes into contact with what someone would learn in, like, a secular history class in, like, high school. And it's salacious. Like, it's very soap opera-y. So if you want to hold someone to hold on to a piece of information, make it salacious. Yeah. And it fits into that whole kind of um, kitsch culture that we have, you know, a gift I got at some point in teaching summary classes from a church history class was, was the mug with the, the heads of all of Henry's wives. And when you have your hot water on it, like, <laughs> and I tried that once. I thought it was like the most kind of horrifying misogynistic I had ever received. Like, let's just make the women disappear. Oh, wow. Well, I guess creativity gets some points, but I don't think they tried it out and realized what happened. Yeah, I think that's a that's about it. So, Dan, you and I have known each other for over a decade. Um, you, of course, were when we met, you were teaching at the seminary I attended, the Church Divinity School of the Pacific in Berkeley, California, but you never taught while I was there. And we just sort of crossed paths in my hanging around occasionally as an alumni. Tell us, tell our listeners more about yourself, what you're doing now. And yeah, I think that's it. Tell us about yourself and what you're doing now. Yeah, so my name is Dan Jocelyn Smitowski. Uh, I'm an Episcopal priest, and for 17 years, I taught church history at Episcopal Church Seminaries, um, first at a uh, little bit at Episcopal Divinity School back when it was in Cambridge, Massachusetts, then at Church Divinity School in Berkeley, California, and then at Seminary Southwest for the past eight years in Austin, Texas. But now uh, I am at Boston College, where I actually received my graduate training, uh, and here I am directing the Center for Christian Jewish Learning and Jewish Christian Relations is really my deep passion, you know, rooted in my knowledge of history, but also trying to amplify that out to contemporary issues. I really am impressed with this new calling of yours, and I'm grateful 
on a regular basis for your reminding me of the important issues in Jewish and Christian relationships and how um, we in the church portray and interact with those pieces, both ancient and contemporary. So I just want to say thank you to you for that. Well, thank you. It's um, I get that kind of um, affirmation of my vocational calling, and it's it's really good to receive that. Thank you. You're welcome. So I am the Reverend Jane Gober. I'm the rector here at Christ Church in Ridley Park, Pennsylvania, in the Diocese of Pennsylvania. And this is Right Questions. Right Questions is part of a adult confirmation process. It also is for anyone who's just got some questions about what we are up to in the Episcopal Church. It's paired with the book, uh, Your Faith, Your Life by Jennifer Gamber, who's one of the guests on one of the episodes. And this episode is going to connect with chapter three. And so as with every single one of my episodes here, these episodes here, every single topic someone could spend entire PhDs on small segments of. But on the other hand, there's also a bigger picture that's important to know. And the chapter does does a really good job of sort of um, walking through the sequence of historical events that lead to the church that we are today. And I'm wondering if you have three or four things, I don't even know what to call it, but things to help with the broader broader picture, the broader storytelling about the history of the church and how we get to the Episcopal Church as it is today. Yeah, I really appreciate the chapter. I mean, it starts at the very beginning. It talks about, you know, the apostles. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> Good place to start. Yeah. And, you know, it really gets us up right, you know, to the past decade of the life of the Episcopal Church. It does all in 10 pages. So, like, well done. Um, I think it, it it does a great job. And so there's so many things to say about history of Christianity in general, history of the Episcopal Church. Uh, when I was in seminary last teaching, this was all done over three semesters. So <laughs> we're not going to be able to do that here. No. So I think instead of like picking out like specific episodes, I want to talk about like three ways that I encourage people to think about history. All right. Especially people who are Christian or who are trying to be clergy or who want to have a deeper way of engaging with how the church meets the world, which I think is always kind of the, the go-to question at the end of the day when you come to history is, so what? Like, so what that this happened? Uh, why should we care? This doesn't feel connected to me or um, what have you. So one, the first thing I, I often lead with is helping people to think about history as um, story in context. That is, so Winston Churchill once said, the problem with history is it's one damn thing after another, right? And so we have this way of thinking about history, which is just like this slog through time, and this thing happened, and that thing happened, and it's all about dates, facts, figures, the great men of history. And you have to know time periods, you have to know who major actors were, you have to know events. But it's really asking, what is the context in which things are happening? That is... There's one way of thinking about history, which is just a sequence of events. But I think it's m better to think of history as some, as interconnected events, that they layer, and that things aren't inevitable, but that things happen for complex sets of reasons. So I always tell my students, if someone tells you, you know, 
X event happened for Y reason. If they say a, a, a complex event, like say uh, the Great Depression or the American Revolution or the separation of the Church of England from the Church of Rome happened because of one thing, like King Henry's divorce. I, I tell them, don't trust people who give you simple answers for complex events. Complex events happen for complex reasons. So if we're going to go into the reasons why Henry separates the Church of England from the Church of Rome, we could talk about English royal papal relations. We could talk about reform movements. We could talk about debates over God-given authority between monarchs and um, church leaders. They are all happening in the centuries prior to this. And then, so that we actually get into some very interesting spaces and we get into questions like, who wanted this? Who cared about it? Who participated in it? So I, I would argue context is everything. I think this matters when I was talking to people who are trained to be clergy to help them see that thinking about context historically is a really good transferable skill for thinking about context for ministry. That and I'm sure, Jane, you have many stories about you or others barreling into a ministry context, not thinking about that context or thinking there's a very simple reason why X thing is happening when there's actually a very complex web of things. A dozen factors that I may or may not know about and ever be even told about, and there may not even be any evidence about, but that entire, all those layers of story impact every reaction in the moment. Exactly. And I, I think this works for people in so many fields. You know, I just got to a new job here at Boston College. I've decided I'm just going to talk to people for a while <laughs> before I come up with any big new plans. Mm-hmm. I've lived all over the country. You have too. I, I think you were a military. Brat. I am. I am. So I think you also have that, you know, you, different places have different narratives and it takes a while to pick up on those narratives. Yeah. And so the history is just full of overlapping and intersecting narratives. So very rich tapestries. And so that's the first thing. Instead of thinking of history as just one thing after another, thinking of them as these kind of beautiful interlocking webs, quilt works, wherever the the fractals, wherever like metaphor you want there, I think helps you kind of enjoy, (laughs) be curious want to dig into one area, I think it's just a useful way to approach history. It really is. And one of the things that came up, you know, in the sequence of events in the book and, you know, is that place where the Christian religion goes from being outlawed and persecuted at different levels, but not always the same, um, to being one of the legalized religions, to being basically the way I talk about it when I teach history is basically it became a merger eventually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the reasons for that are extraordinarily complex from whether it's environmental factors, factors of literacy, breakdown, tribal movements, the complexity of that story, of the context of what's going on that leads to it. And then it's also not as plain and simple as, you know, Mr. So-and-so writes a document and suddenly everything is all better. Right, right. Yeah, like uh, Martin Luther posting the 95 Theses on the door of Wittenberg, which, by the way, probably never actually happened. But like we, we, we have a narrative about that. Like Martin Luther posts those 95 Theses and everyone's like, oh my gosh, can you believe it? And like the world 
is upside down. Everything changes and half of the world reforms and yeah. what have you, whereas it's so complex. Much more complex. And there was many moments where everything could have stopped or been averted or, you know, for years after that, you know, a good three years after that event, Martin Luther's saying, if the Pope would just like sit down. Listen to me. You know, like, let's have a conversation. Now, of course, anyone having a reasonable conversation with Martin Luther could be challenging because he was a very irascible sort of fellow. And eventually they banned him from going to dialogues. But, you know, it, it just gives you that that sense of what I what historians call contingency. Okay. Right. Like there's not a, there's, there's never singular events or there's rarely singular events. But even those singular events all have these complex lead ups to them. Contingency is an important word to think about. Thank you for that. Yeah. Contingency is one of the ones I really try to get folks to, to lean into. So a, a second kind of way I encourage people to think about history, especially the history of Christianity is to think of the history of Christianity as always global. Okay. We tend to think of global Christianity as an offshoot of the missionary movement of the 19th and 20th centuries. Yep. We have this way of thinking about the history of Christianity that it starts in the land of Israel, Eastern Mediterranean. They go up to Antioch. They go west across to Rome, north into Europe, the rest of Europe, over to the British Isles, across the Atlantic. And then, you know, thank God they found America because then they could go everywhere and send missionaries everywhere. It's definitely a westward leaning. Uh, telling of history. Yeah, it's very well. It's kind of a manifest destiny, almost kind of. It is westward expansion model uh, of it. So one of the things I do with teaching history of Christianity is try to show how it's from the beginning um, multilingual. Mm -hmm. Just think about what happens in what's Act Acts chapter eight, where Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, right? Yeah. What's going on? Like Philip's riding on the on the road, and he finds this Ethiopian eunuch, and he gets baptized, and then he goes to Ethiopia and spreads the gospel. And then we hear zip about it, but you know, sometime in the decade of the thirties of the Common Era, there's Christians in Ethiopia, right? We have early communities of Christians all along, all the way over to India. Every trade route, really. There's trade routes. Like if you just look at a map of East Africa, you could just see how you could just hug the coast all the way over to Af uh, to India. The first Christian kingdom is in Armenia. We have Christianity in Nubia by the fourth century, uh, where the kingdom of Nubia um, becomes Christian, and we have really interesting archaeological evidence of that. We have Christianity in China by the 6th century. turns out that Christianity is in Tibet before Buddhism is in Tibet. Wow, I had no idea. Right? Moving along the Silk and Spice Roads. Yeah, it makes sense. Right. But... Yeah. You know, Buddhism was a missionary religion also. So think of China and Buddhism as like equivalent. Yeah. So Buddhism is coming out of the um, South Asian um, region of what we call India today. Um, we have, you know, little carvings of Christ on the cross or nativity scenes in ivory from Northern Europe, areas like Germany. Now you have to think, how, 
where's the ivory coming from? It's yeah. coming from Africa. There's yeah. triggers. The first form of Christianity in Western Sub-Saharan Africa is Catholicism in the 15th century brought by the Portuguese. Interesting. The Congolese cardinal at the Council of Trent in the 1540s. Hmm. So if we begin to think of Christianity as global from very early on, multi-ethnic, multilingual, that helps it to center part of the, the Eurocentric whiteness narrative that we're all sort of been struggling with lately about how do we how we recast our story. You know, the, the chapter that uh, you all have been reading for uh, this podcast does a good job of that. Um, when it comes to the Episcopal Church, but we can like actually do the work much earlier. Mm-hmm. And it's about having people re-narrate the history of Christianity. So what does it look like when we say, well, the history of Christianity is a multi-ethnic, multilingual, multiracial narrative from its origins? That just shifts how we view ourselves as inheritors of it. So if you think of the, the community of saints, the people who have gone before us, and we think about where they're located, we can begin <laughs> with a global vision of it that's authentic. Terrific. It's important to dig deep into that place where it's always been a part of who we are. And in some ways, we've been influenced by 2,000 years of Western Christian art, primarily of what's flowing into us. But you're naming for me for the first time, you know, the idea, this place of these ivory crushes in Germany is an astounding reminder of how the world's actually always, well, a number of the continents at least have been always highly connected. We just sort of lost that information along the way when we started painting with such broad brushes about history. Yeah, I think part of it is just to ask the question of how, how do we get our narratives? Where do our stories come from? And if we're located in the United States, it's coming out of Eurocentric perspectives that are informed by a kind of colonialism. You know, there's this, I forget where I read this story. I, I think it's just probably an internet meme, actually, so I'm just going to repeat it. But it, it's part of a illuminating thing where it's a story and this is mirrors some things that happened with missionary activity in 19th century missionary um, is in uh comes to a palestinian christian village the missionary says um do, do you know the gospel and uh, the young man he's talking to says yes we know the gospel we know who jesus is and the missionary is suspicious if like he really knows the real gospel and not some catholic version maybe that's all you know, polluted yep. by rituals and rites and ceremonies, and that's just the true word of our bias towards our neighbor. Right. And so the uh, missionary asks, Well, where'd you get your gospel from? And the young man says, Hold on, I'll find out. And so he goes and asks the village elder, Where did our gospel come from? And he talks to the village elder, and he comes back from the village elder and says to the missionary, He says, From Paul. Right. <laughs> so the sense of the Eurocentric narrative of, you know, we have the gospel and we're going to bring it to other people. Instead of not having this picture of the apostles and this apostolic legacy. And it calls for a little bit of cultural humility for us to come to new contexts and locations and say, 
who's been here before. Or when we receive people from churches globally into the United States um, who come as Christians to listen to their story of Christianity as they come into our communities. I just came out of the Diocese of Texas most recently where there's a large Dinka community from South Sudan that comes through um, Anglican missionary activity in the 19th century, but they call on the legacy of ancient Christian African kingdoms as part of their missionary work and part of their own narrative that this has been a Christian land for some time. And it's important to listen to those legacies and those stories. Thank you for that reminder. Yeah, it's um, helpful, I think. So do you have a third way to help us think about history? Yeah. I often get this question. So what do the average person think? <laughs> you know, I'll be talking. Like the average person in history? In history, right? Okay. So what did the average person, I'm talking about, I don't know, the Council of Nicaea. Well, what did the ordinary person think? Or um, a massive question often as I'm working through the early history of Christianity is, where are all the women? <laughs> like, you know, you, you read the New Testament, and it's clear that like, women are like the drivers of the gospel. Right. Right. They draw, and so like, where are their voices? And so it's a question of elite versus popular visions of Christianity. Many of the sources we have that are written come out of elite contexts. Right. Um, you know, even today, the media we consume, even though social media is its own work, it's mediated through all these filters of the global elite, whether it's a Mark Zuckerberg or, you know, where we're. Or an influencer or. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So I always try to help people see that the average person is engaged as talking. And the question is, how can we uncover their voices? So one great way is through what we call material culture, which, you know, it's just talking about ivories, right? Like what's left behind when we do archaeological digs? Can we find houses that um, have Christian artifacts in them? So uh, there's been some great research done in Egypt in the fourth century that shows all kinds of ways that people transitioned from Egyptian magic to Christian magic. Mm-hmm. So amulets, right? Yep. An amulet, something you wear around your neck that often has a, some kind of container that holds something wrapped up in papyrus or something else that has invocations to a god for X, Y, and Z. And so scholars have discovered papyrus with Christian invocations to protect people. So invoking various saints, invoking Christ, invoking the Virgin Mary to protect them for health, welfare, safety of children, for travelers. And so one of the interesting things to think about in this perspective is religion was true if your God was powerful to act. Mm Mm-hmm. So an amulet isn't just like superstition. It's trusting that the God you believe in will protect you. Yeah. So so one of the things to just think about is the crosses we wear around our necks are essentially amulets. Yeah. 
designed to replace <laughs> non-Christian symbols of divine protection. And actually, St. John Chrysostom has several sermons on the wearing of crosses, mm-hmm. where he's basically trying to get Christians to wear crosses around their neck instead of amulets they could buy from other people. You know, it part of what you're pointing to is that place where the common spirituality and the common engagement with religion is less categorized than maybe the top-down approach is. I was reading an article about how younger Western folks are have a more open-ended spirituality and more experimentation with mm. this, that, and the other, and so on. And I actually think people have been doing that all along. Um, we just haven't made note of it because of where the sources are and so mm-hmm. on. So that there are ways in which you know localized ancient indigenous practices in almost every place where the church lands get some of their practices transformed into something else right. that matches. Um, and that that has just been the way of the world for a really, for basically forever. Mm-hmm. And we have a duty to do that with, well, at least I have a duty to do that with discernment and care and so on and really think through it and make sure I'm not just borrowing something because I'm Martha stored of religion and think, oh, that's cool. But honoring the fact that that it's not coming from a place of deception or unfaith, it's coming from a embodied faith. Exactly, exactly, and a sense of like there's something here that's really true. So like another one of the great examples of how popular religion begins to influence official religion in Christianity is mm-hmm. around the dispute about what to call the Virgin Mary in okay. century Constantinople. So some folks might have heard that uh, if you come from like the Orthodox world, Mary was referred to as Theotokos, which means the God bearer. Yep. And some theologians got upset about that. They said, well, she shouldn't be called the God bearer because that would be referring to like giving birth to God the Father. She should be called Christotokos, Christ bearer, or Anthropotokos, the bearer of humanity. Humanity. And this controversy, basically people are singing hymns in church to the Theotokos. And the Bishop of Constantinople, Nestorius, gets up and preaches a sermon against this. And this kicks off the controversy called the Nestorian controversy that leads to a famous definition of who Jesus Christ is that's called the Chalcedonian formula or Calcium agreement and Jane's dying her head because Jane has learned this well from her teachers. I uh, have. You have. But, you know, and we don't need to get into the weeds of what the doctrine was, but the doctrine comes out of a dispute about lived religion. Yeah. And just to see that we can, if we read against the grain of history, we can find the voices of everyday people or what we call social history or history from below bubbling up. And I think we live that all the time. I think what we're living through the pandemic and post-pandemic or whatever we're in, that you're, I know you're trying to navigate, which is how do we live our spiritual lives through these mediated forms of internet, Zoom, video, you know, can, can the Eucharist be consecrated online? You know, all these questions, which are really have profound deep implications are arising of people's lived experience. Yeah. 
Um, one of the ways in which you know trying to use these digital formats is trying to answer is the context in which we have people's lives that are pressed upon for duties and actions in 24/7 7 days a week with the pressure of your kids won't you know survive and thrive unless they do 9 million activities and unless you're doing 9 million activities which pushes out um the space for one gathered time for spiritual nurture, but people still have that need. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I would just argue that sort of give and take is always happening in the history of the church. We just, you just need to have the right sets of lenses to observe it. Yeah. And be asking the right sorts of questions, but like, why is this thing happening? And what, whose voices can we listen to that we haven't been listening to before in various moments in time. Yeah. You know, interestingly, I, I want to get your take on this. So my answer to the question about Henry VIII relates to this, of that if he had been the only person in the entire kingdom that thought this was a good idea, he could have done it, but he would have been slaughtered. In mm -hmm. some ways, he was riding one of the waves of local and human religion through the mercantile class and the knowledge that was coming in and increased literacy. Um, he was taking, he, like I said, he was riding the wave of a reality within his kingdom. Now, was it 100%? No. But was it significant? Yes. And to his political advantage. Right. Right. And we hate to think that the political and the spiritual is intertwined. We've been well trained in the idea that they are not supposed to. Right. But like it's it's unavoidable. Like and I would just simply say there is no human society in which the political and the spiritual is not intertwined. Absolutely. And proceed with caution. <laughs> exactly. Careful discernment in community, yeah. check your sources, etc. Yeah. So speaking of action in life, mm -hmm. you you've been a church history professor for a long while now, you have advanced degrees, you are a priest. What's something that we can do? One is a, a little habit I have, and the other is kind of a, a framework. So my, 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 egg, my habit that maybe you might want to try out is stop and read the plaque. What do you mean by stop and read the plaque? Stop and read the historical marker. Ah, so you walk okay. and you see one of those little historical markers, mm -hmm. just stop and read it. Because what it's doing is it's telling you a story about that place. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that we do as modern people is forget that places are their own vibrant realities. It's not just a building. Like If we think about the community of saints, that we have this long history of people and time and place, mm -hmm. every place in a way is kind of vibrating with the past. Yeah. If you just stop and think about it. So just always stop and read the plaque. This drives my kids crazy because my wife and I like just always do this. And sometimes the plaque is long. So we used to drive up to the Twin Cities from Austin. It's along Interstate 35. It's where my wife's family lived. And we would stop at rest stops in like Nebraska. And there's this huge like, you know, plaque. three plaques. I'm yeah. like, like, why are we here reading this in the cold? I'm like, this is really interesting. It's like, this is, you know, stop and read the plaques because that will just – center you a little bit more mm -hmm. in where you are. So which is kind of the framework, the second bit, the framework I'd encourage, which is to be curious about where you are. Okay. Just be curious about where you are. 
Like, ask yourself, why does this road go this way? One of the things I found out when I was living in Austin is, is that there were certain roads, and there was, um, there was something called Shoal Creek, which is a, just a, a, a stream bed that runs through the center of Austin. Turns out that was essentially the Native American highway. Ah. That was how people got places as they walked along this dry stream. Moderately bed. cleared out through the <laughs> floods of rains of an yeah. Arroyo effect. Yeah. Exactly. And it was all limestone. So it was pretty well smoothed out, right? So, and then you realize, oh, like th these major roads, well, that was the road to Houston. That was the road to San Antonio. That was the road to Dallas. And those roads often were earlier indigenous pathways. And so you just, just ask yourself, like, why does this road go here? Or what was here before this building was here? Yeah. So if you're a church, just one of the things, again, in a parish, if you're new to a church, this is just look around at the windows and the other markers inside the sanctuary and just like notice the names. Mm-hmm. The pictures of all the rectors. Mm -hmm. Notice what you can <laughs> about those pictures. And I always would tell folks who are trying to be clergy, when you get to your parish, talk to the people who've been there the longest. Get to know them. Um, but I, I would say foster a habit of curiosity about where you are. Those are great pieces of advice for every part of life. So... Um, today, your three ways to think about history were to think of it as story in context, that there are layers of interconnected events always going on. It isn't just a single thing that happened randomly, usually. Mm -hmm. Secondly, that Christian history has always been global and always been complex, complex in gender, complex in race, complex in ethnicity and location. And that thinking about it that way helps us to decenter some of the ways in which the story has been told from a elite Western perspective. Mm -hmm. And then thirdly is uncovering the ordinary, that there beyond the text, there is a bit of a mystery, but it still has evidence of it, of the ordinary spirituality of the lives of the faithful through time. Um, and sometimes that's just going to come up through material evidence. Sometimes it's going to come up through buildings, like what we were just talking about at the end. And at the end, you had two suggestions. Number one is to read the plaque, take the time, read the plaque. And then secondly, just being curious about where you are and why things are the way they are, whether it's in a building or in a neighborhood or in a relationship even. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining me in this experiment in right questions and giving us some healthy ways to think about church history that are more than just this, that, and the other detail and historical moment. And I will actually say that we are recording this on a, mom a day of a historical moment of the death of Queen Elizabeth II. May she rest in peace and rise in glory. But to close us out, I am going to offer a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. And this is actually one for a church convention or meeting, and I'm adapting it a little bit, but I think it connects well to thinking about church history. So let us pray. Almighty and ever-living God, source of all wisdom and understanding, 
Be present with those who strive for the renewal and mission of your church in every age. Teach us in all things to seek first your honor and glory. Guide us to perceive what is right. Help us to be curious and grant us both courage, the courage to pursue it and the grace to accomplish it. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.